The first Lebanese arrived in West Africa at the end of the 19th century. They emigrated to Africa due to the collapse of the Lebanese silk industry and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. The first Lebanese Maronite Christians arrived in Freetown in 1893. They were soon followed by Shiites from South Lebanon who were also running away from the economic hardships in Lebanon. After arriving in Freetown, the Lebanese spread out into Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Nigeria, and even the Congo. Today, there are an estimated 100,000 Lebanese in Cote d'Ivoire and 20,000 in Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone, the Lebanese quickly displaced the Creoles as the main commercial driving force. They flourished in every sector of the economy, and by the 1930s, when diamonds were first discovered in Kono district, the first colonial officials posted to the area found that a Lebanese trader had already been there for the last two years. Welcome to Society of Strife. As I mentioned in the Sierra Leone episode, the Lebanese were very involved in diamond smuggling in Freetown, especially after the introduction of an alluvial mining scheme in 1956. The scheme allowed ordinary Sierra Leoneans to mine for diamonds outside areas covered by the SLST lease. Mining licenses were issued only to Sierra Leoneans, but dealers' licenses were available for purchase by just about anyone. Using these dealer licenses, the Lebanese quickly dominated the legal diamond trade. The Lebanese also took part in the illegal diamond trade. They used their official channels to smuggle blood diamonds out of the country. Let's now fast forward to 1975 and the Lebanese Civil War. The Lebanese Civil War had a profound effect on the Lebanese community and the diamond industry in West Africa. Before we get any further, let's talk about AMAL. AMAL or the Afwaj al-Mukawama al-Lubaniya is a Lebanese political party that was founded by Musa al-Sadr in 1974. But before it became the political party that it is today, AMAL was a militia. By 1980, AMAL had become one of the most powerful militias in Lebanon. Following the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in, in 1982, it was used by Syria to push the US-led multinational force out of Lebanon. AMAL was and is currently led by Nabi Berry, and that's where our diamond connection comes in. Nabi Berry was born in Sierra Leone, and during his childhood, he became friends with Jamil Sahel Mohammed. By 1988, Jamil was the lead diamond trader in Sierra Leone, and AMAL needed financial support. For these, it turned to Lebanese experts, especially the ones in Africa. As a diamond dealer, later explained, quote, maybe every two or three months or so, a community leader would call small groups of us around to his house. Firstly, he would give us a report on how things were going for AMAL back in Lebanon. You know, what Barry was doing and whether ground was being lost or gained. Then, we would all sit down and talk about contributions. Everyone pretty well knows how everyone is doing. 
so the community leader knew how much everyone could afford. It was just a small percentage of monthly earnings. If people were in the shit, they didn't have to pay. It was no problem. You know, nobody ever complained. In fact, everyone I knew was happy to help. It was for our people back in Lebanon, and we all wanted them looked after. I just used to send parcels of diamonds. What happened to them, I don't know. Either they were sold for cash in Antwerp or Lebanon or Israel, or whatever. It wasn't my problem. I knew that the matter was in good hands. End quote. That's the sort of attitude I'd expect from someone allegedly dealing in blood diamonds. You know, just send them and then they are used to fund yet another conflict which takes even more lives. That quote from the diamond dealer was partly untrue because that quote-unquote gathering sometimes turned into a protection racket, with gangs attacking the homes, shops, and businesses of whoever refused to pay. In 1986, Jamil Sahel Mohammed fled from Sierra Leone after he was accused by then-president Joseph Momo of plotting a coup. I talked more about it in the Sierra Leone episode. Anyway, even after Jamil fled, the Lebanese in Sierra Leone still continued dealing in diamonds and smuggling some of them as quote-unquote taxes back to Lebanon. Things were about to get a lot crazier too as Hezbollah was about to get involved in this little scheme. We'll talk more about Hezbollah later on. For now, we'll just talk about it in the context of this episode and its relation to the global trade in blood diamonds. Hezbollah, which translates to the party of God, was created in Lebanon by disillusioned Shiites in 1982 when Israel invaded the capital, Beirut, and southern Lebanon. Israel did this in an effort to root out and destroy the PLO or the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Just as with the trade in Sierra Leonean diamonds and the funneling of funds to AMAL, Jamil was involved here as well. With Nabi Berry's help, he made contact with Iran, which is Hezbollah's main backer, allegedly. With this contact, Jamil initiated diplomatic ties between Tehran and Freetown, Sierra Leone's capital. In 1983, when the first Iranian ambassador arrived in Freetown, he was greeted not by government officials, but by Jamil himself. Iran was cunning though. They quickly ingratiated themselves with the Sierra Leonean government, which was almost bankrupt at the time. In return for loans and Iranian oil, Sierra Leone allowed the new Iranian government to set up a West African operations hub in the country. During the 1980s, Backed by both Iran and Syria, Hezbollah's power grew. It bombed a U.S. marine barracks and the U.S. embassy in Beirut, and finally forced the West to withdraw from Lebanon completely. As the civil war continued, Hezbollah shifted its attention to kidnapping Westerners and was eventually able to force Israel to completely withdraw from Lebanon. After the civil war, Hezbollah became a political party and has enjoyed popular support in the Middle East for its conservative views on Islam. The American government, most of the West, and the GCC, or the Gulf Cooperation Council, considered Hezbollah a terrorist organization, but the UN doesn't. The EU differentiates between the military and political wings and declares the military wing a terrorist organization, 
but maintains that the political wing is a legitimate organization. For that reason, I'm a little confused as to where I stand on Hezbollah, so I'll just leave that to you listeners. Although, based on my research into the organization, I don't think that it's totally justifiable to refer to Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. Hezbollah was also involved in diamond smuggling. A Belgian military intelligence report identified several Lebanese diamond traders said to have links to Hezbollah. It's interesting that they did that seeing that they did absolutely nothing about the global trade in blood diamonds. One of these men was Imad Bakri, also known as Imad Kabir, and also Imad Bakir. Imad Bakri had also been identified by the UN as being UNITA's primary broker for importing arms and military equipment. With Hezbollah's involvement in the diamond trade, it didn't take long for another group to show up. That group was Al-Qaeda. According to the Washington Post and its correspondent, Doug Farah, Al-Qaeda quote, ripped millions of dollars in the past three years from the sale of illicit diamonds mined by rebels in Sierra Leone, end quote. Most of this trade was carried out through one man, Ibrahim Ba. Ibrahim Ba was a man from Burkina Faso. He worked closely with the RUF and served as their diamond bagman. That was not all though. Ibrahim Ba had also trained and fought with Hezbollah. After that, he had fought with the Mujahideen against the Russians in Afghanistan. In the 1990s, he fought with Charles Taylor and later helped him attain power in 1997. I mean, who is this guy? The god of war? The UN expert on Sierra Leone said that he was also known as Ibrahima slash Ibrahim Balde and that he was instrumental in the movement of RUF diamonds from Sierra Leone into Liberia and from there to Burkina Faso. According to the Washington Post article, which was written shortly after 9-11, quote, Ibrahim Barr acted as a conduit between RUF commanders and the buyers from both Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah, end quote. It went on to say that three Al-Qaeda officials who were involved in the U.S. embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania had paid visits to RUF-held areas of Sierra Leone. The visits had been facilitated by Charles Taylor. In my research, I have found zero evidence pertaining to these allegations, though I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I mean, he wasn't a nice guy by any stretch of the imagination. To be honest, I thought that Charles Taylor had the biggest cojones on the planet before Orange Man said that he was going to be reinstated as president in August and Boris Johnson got married to a woman almost half his age. And before you start groaning and frowning, remember this. When he was in university, she wasn't even born yet. Since when is that okay? I get that they are both adults, but come on. At some point we need to have age boundaries. Otherwise, child marriages would be legal. I'm just saying. Anyway, after that Washington Post article, an avalanche of denials followed. In Sierra Leone, acting RUF leader Isa Sese denied any connection to Al-Qaeda. In an interview with Radio France, he said the following, quote, No, no, we would never do business with this type of people, and I have no knowledge with that. I have no business with them. We have nothing to do with them 
you know, as far as I'm concerned, with the present peace process in Sierra Leone. And even as far as talking of 1998 or 1999, we have no idea. We have no idea with being in contact with these people you're talking of. We never came across with the Algerians. We have no business with them and we never worked with them. We never happened to and we've never been in contact with these people. We never knew them and we don't know them. We have no dealing with them. We have no business with them at all as far as I'm concerned. End quote. Yes, I know that was a little hard to follow, but it's a quote, so I can't really change it. Although that's a lot of denial, so much that I find it suspicious. As for Charles Taylor, well, he was so mad that the Washington Post had to pull its correspondent from Africa. A year after the first article first came out, another, even more detailed article was published by the Washington Post. According to that article, the Al-Qaeda operation began in September 1998, six weeks after the bombing of the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, and shortly after the U.S. froze Al-Qaeda and Taliban assets. That brings me to another problem with gemstones. Size. Think about the value of a handful of gemstones. It's probably equal to the value of three gold ingots. Gold is heavy and you would need about one medium bag while you could stuff a handful of gemstones up your butthole and board a plane. That, by the way, is not SOS-approved behavior. Also, the, that comparison depends on the value of the gemstones in question. Anyway, that is the reason why gemstones, such as diamonds, are used as currency for some of the world's dirtiest practices. At least, they were before Bitcoin came along. After Taliban and Al-Qaeda assets were frozen, both groups needed a way to both hide money and move money outside normal banking structures. Al-Qaeda had already invested in gemstones across Tanzania, and after its assets were frozen, it just spread to West Africa. After the freeze, a senior Al-Qaeda financial officer by the name of Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah arrived in Monrovia, Liberia, and was introduced by Ibrahim Barr to Liberian and RUF, to Liberian and RUF officials. Abdullah Ahmed was suspected of masterminding the US embassy bombings in both Kenya and Tanzania. So, when you hear that quote by Issa Sese about the RUF not doing business with Al-Qaeda, take it with a grain of salt. A huge grain. Another visitor was Fazul Abdullah Mohammed. Mohammed was suspected of involvement in the bombing of a Mombasa hotel in 2002. He was so infamous that after he was sighted in Nairobi, Kenya, in May 2003, the British government banned all commercial flights to the country. Now, remember Sambokari, the least popular degenerate on this show? Well, he made a deal with Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah. As in, he made a deal with a terrorist organization representative while knowing fully well that those diamonds were going to be used to fund terrorist activities. No wonder his nickname was Mosquito, and we all know how much misery mosquitoes spread around the world. In July 2000, Ibrahim Barr approached a company named ASADM or Asadiam about handling gems. Now, Asadiam is very important to this story because two of its associates, 
were involved in the smuggling of blood diamonds. Sami Osaili and Aziz Nasur were cousins. They were both born in Sierra Leone. Aziz Nasur went on to work in the diamond underworlds in both the DRC and Liberia. A UN report in October 2002 linked him to a group of Lebanese criminals operating in the DRC. According to the Washington Post, Sami Osaili and another Lebanese diamond dealer, Ali Dawish, met Al-Qaeda operatives in Monrovia in December 2002 and along with several RUF commanders, traveled to Sierra Leone to inspect the diamonds. Back in Monrovia, just after New Year's 2001, a courier paid $300,000 to Ibrahim Ba for a shipment of diamonds. According to a European intelligence report, Aziz Nasur flew from Beirut to Dubai in 2001, where he picked up $1 million. After leaving Dubai, Aziz flew to Burkina Faso, where the report said that two Al-Qaeda operatives were staying in the compound of Burkina Faso President Blaise Compaore in the Zondubois district. Nasur then flew to Monrovia, where he allegedly gave Charles Taylor the money so he could hide the two operatives in one of his military camps. In the same month, Issa Sese allegedly wrote a letter to Charles Taylor. The letter read, quote, We have agreed to sell all our diamonds to Mr. Aziz Nasur through your offices. He went on to say that, quote, Aziz Nasur has been introduced to the RUF by General Ibrahim Balde, meaning Ibrahim Ba, upon your recommendation. End quote. In the summer of 2002, after Aziz's cousin, Sami Osaili was captured in Belgium on charges of money laundering, arms dealing, and trading in embargoed diamonds from Sierra Leone, Aziz went on with business as usual. According to Global Witness, he delivered two shipments of weapons to Liberia, and after the Washington Post's expose, Charles Taylor offered him sanctuary in exchange for investments in Liberia's logging industry. I don't need to say this, but both Blaise Compaore and Charles Taylor denied these allegations. As for Ibrahim Barr, well, he agreed that he had worked with the RUF but denied working with Al-Qaeda. He went as far as to deny the existence of Osama bin Laden before 9-11, which is just as laughable as US Republicans denying the existence of QAnon. As for Sami Osaili, he admitted his wrongdoings. He admitted that both he and his cousin were involved in some bloodshed around West Africa and the Middle East. He completely denied involvement in illegal arms sales, bribery of local officials, and any connections to Al-Qaeda and blood diamonds. That brings us to the end of this episode and the end of this season. Mind-blowing, right? Well, before we end, I'd like to get some things off of my chest and onto yours. First of all, I'd like to thank you Strifers for joining me along this very, very educative journey. It's been a pleasure and I've learned so much in the past six months that this podcast has been on air. I can only hope that you've learned as much as well. Second thing is support. As I always say, support is the most important part of podcasting. 
Without support, a podcast is destined to fail. So I'd like to thank everyone for all of their support. If you liked this season, please get on patreon.com slash societyofstrife and buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife and help me produce the second season of Society of Strife. You know, for a podcast to be successful, unless you're Joe Rogan or Barack Obama, you need to spend money on advertisements. By spending money, I mean tens of thousands of dollars in advertising. I haven't done that, so I really need your support. As I always say, support can be through spreading the word, you know, sharing the podcast. Tell your family and friends about the show. You can also get on iTunes, Amazon Music, Audible, or anywhere else you listen to this show and leave the show a 5-star review. 5-star reviews help the show land on charts, where it is then discovered by new listeners. So ratings are really important for any podcast. I'd also like to address bonus and exclusive episodes. If you're a Patreon or buy me a coffee supporter, then this season isn't over for you. I'll be releasing two new episodes for you guys. One of those will be the last cannibalism episode. So believe me, you need to listen to that. The second will be about the Kimberly process. The Kimberly process is quite interesting because it is what companies used to claim that their diamonds are conflict-free despite the fact that it didn't really work. As for everyone else, well, I'll see you in two weeks time when the new season begins. I'll be releasing a new trailer sometime next week, so be sure to listen to it. New episodes of Agents of Strife will start dropping this Tuesday so you can listen to those as you wait for the new season. As always, it's been a pleasure. Goodbye. Remember to stay safe.